0: Rob hey what's up Mike how you doing man good how you doing pretty good can you believe I'm back upstate after all this shit
1: I know I can't believe it. curfew right
0: curfew all kind of madness is going on (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah god man I mean by the time everybody hears this hopefully it'll be over with
0: yeah hopefully we'll be back drinking in the bar
1: hanging out like civilized human beings I know I know I think it's going to be a little quieter in the east village for a while though
0: yeah, definitely more quiet. So uh, this is uh, the rock show seventy-four and uh we're just talking about a group that pretty much uh introduced the grunge to um to most of America. A yeah from Seattle. Uh, we're talking about the making of the album from Nirvana, Nirvana Nevermind. Is that right? Right,
1: right. Um to me this is probably the one of the most important albums of the last thirty years. Um I'll be honest with you. I have kind of a, a a back and forth love and hate relationship with the band, and I'll go into that later.
0: You know what's but, funny? You're not the only one. some people even love them, or they just hate them. I don't get this like no in between. And the band was like, um, they're short lived. They didn't last very long. It was like like from eighty seven to ninety four, pretty much.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, ended in tragedy with Kurt Cobain committing suicide. But uh, you know, it. it, it you mean
0: Courtney that- loved killing him? <laughs>
1: that's a topic for the conspiracy 420 absolutely <laughs> some people believe that to the, to their bone they believe that so it's it's well, that's an interesting topic too um i believe that you know you're right it this this album did usher in the movement out of seattle washington called grunge it was around for a couple of years kind of bubbling under the surface bands like soundgarden bands like nirvana uh pearl jam stuff like that were kind of like you know in that in that genre but Nirvana definitely broke it out to the country to the world and uh it, to me it's the last like real groundbreaking album though uh, that I could think of as far as being like like uh very popular there's been albums after that by different bands i think are better than nevermind but it's just that this album for some reason it was the right music at the right time they had the right people backing it they were on geffen uh which was kind of like you know they had just signed sonic youth so they were getting into like uh you know trying to have underground bands come up and uh it just all for some reason materialized and i think it was really the last great band that mtv made because the, the videos, especially Teen Spirit, really just helped sell that album propelled it. you agree?
0: Yeah, definitely. Let me tell you that. Because um, they had an album before that, but this Nevermind was like a with a with unique cover with a baby underwater. And it was yeah. such a unique fucking cover, too. I remember, Um, I think I remember the first song I heard was I like, Smell Like Teen Spirit that came out.
1: That was the first single off it,
0: and I remember watching that song, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is this gonna change everything!" And man, what I
1: remember, what I remember distinctly was like the slow rise of the of that song. Like it started out like on MTV, 120 minutes, and that was a show I pretty much watched every week. And uh, you, you know, they announced, "Okay, we got the new Nirvana song." Now I had known about Nirvana; I had heard "Bleach." Uh, that was the album, like two years earlier, um, and I, I knew about them from Sub Pop because the Sub Pop label they were on. There was some bands I liked, like the Super Suckers were on that, and uh, a few other bands. They're still around today, the Super Suckers, and then they're they're fucking great. But um, yeah, like me, it was like Soundgarden, Pearl yeah. Jam. Um, well, Sa- Soundgarden is interesting because if Addicts and to- Chain. Yeah, yeah, I mean Alice in Chains definitely uh Soundgarden is interesting because if you listen to their earliest stuff, they are not like what they turned into. They they kind of embraced grunge. They yeah. didn't really they didn't really start in it. They sounded almost like Black Sabbath.
0: Oh yeah, they were they were yeah, they changed, they changed around a little bit. Yeah, but,
1: yeah, but they did get lumped in with that whole genre eventually when they started selling yeah um all right so let's let's get into uh, a little bit here with this because um,
0: Mike let me ask you a question you would yeah. think that pretty much these was these were like pretty much college underground songs that just
1: made it mainstream well uh, yeah i guess you could say college because college radio was still a factor back then yeah but you had you had this emerging legitimate scene called alternative, yeah at the time, and uh I kind of never got that because once alternative got big then it's not alternative anymore yeah it's top 40 so it kind of like i never got that whole thing but uh there was a genre there that you know i remember kids Young, i mean i was a little older so i didn't buy into a lot of the stuff and I'll, i'll get into that later but some of the the stuff that the kids maybe four five six years younger than me was saying, I was kind of like, all right, well, you know, you're into alternatives. That's cool. You know, I I accepted it. But um, now this album, Nevermind, was released on September 21st, 1991. And like we just said, it was their second album following Bleach that had come out in June of 89 on Sub Pop. They also had an EP called Blue that had come out in December of 89. Yep. Oh, a couple of songs on it. Now, what's funny is Kurt Cobain always said, like, the idea for this album was the knack in the Bay City Rollers getting molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath.
0: <laughs>
1: That's that, was, that and I remember reading that years ago. That's, I always thought that was funny. Um, you know, a little background of the band is they were from, they were from Aberdeen, Washington. And they were started by Kurt Cobain, who was singing and playing guitar, and a guy named Chris Novoselic, who was the bass player. And they started in 1987. They signed quickly to Sub Pop, which was a Seattle independent label. And they were able to record their first album, Bleach, in 1989. Now, at that point, uh, prior to that, they had a couple of different lineups, a couple of different drummers. They ended up with a guy named Chad Channing on drums for that album. Okay. And, uh, you know, he would leave in 1990 and be replaced by the uh, ex-punk band Scream's drummer Dave Grohl when the band Scream had kind of unexpectedly broke up. He ended up in Nirvana, and Chris Novoselic, the bass player, has always you know he always said when Grohl joined the band, that's when everything gelled, that's when it all fell into place.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. Um uh, Now Kirk Cobain was known for his kind of like wide taste of musical influences. And he liked everything from R.E.M. to the Smithereens to the Pixies to the Melvins. He liked all different kinds of stuff. And he was consciously beginning to write more melodic songs. He wanted to do that. For him, the music came first, the lyrics came second, but he wanted to have more of a melodic sound and uh one song that they had released just as a single only around that time was called sliver and that was kind of an example of them being like a little more melodic than they had been before in fact on that particular song they had recruited the mud honeys drummer dan peters for that track and he they they kind of they kind of in their mind they thought they were making a pop song when you listen to it, it's not—it's not really, because he's talking about like getting dropped off at his grandmother and being miserable, and you know, grandma, I want to go home. You know that song, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Now, did you want to like kind of you know ask a few questions with this uh, with this show? You like- know,
0: you know what it gets, because I actually it's like when they came in in January, um, ninety ninety two. They did Saturday Night Live on January eleven. Yeah. So um they did like a secret show in a in a in a venue and I was um I was one of the invited guests. Um I won some tickets from K Rock and I we went to this venue. And Which um, which venue? Um it was in the Roseland. Oh, okay. And uh, they had like this se- secret concert with only like hundred and fifty people. Wow. And um they played the whole uh, they played the they, they played the first album, they played the whole never mind. They played for like ninety minutes and um Cool. It was for a very small audience. There were probably newspaper people, and and I yeah. remember seeing, and they played the whole, uh, never mind, I was like blown away, and then that night they went and played Saturday Night Live, and that's probably the last time I ever even came close to seeing Nirvana, but I seen them once, wow. and I was in Roseland standing, like, what the fuck is this shit, and by the end of the fucking last song, they destroyed the stage and the instrument. It was fucking crazy. Yeah, they, they, were,
1: they were known for doing that. But th- now, Kurt didn't have a lot of... He didn't talk to the audience much, right?
0: Like, then he didn't talk. He was just, like, pretty much what he did was introduce the song, and he would say a little bit of what caused the song, and why he wrote the song, and this and that. But he was pretty much, like, he wasn't very into the crowd. Like, he was just into, like, his own zone, and uh, all right, this yeah. is like you go, This is this is that, this is that.
1: Wow, so like 150 people you got to see, them, that's yeah. pretty cool.
0: But you know what's funny? There, they did a revision of the man, um, Man Who Sold the World, the man who sold the World, They did a nice rendition also, and then they did it again for that, um, iconic, um, unplug, MTV Unplug, and. They even uh, they even did it where they went to uh, the Grammys a few years after May was dead and Beck was singing the lyrics to her, The Man Saw the World.
1: Yeah, I think I remember that.
0: Yeah, okay. so that, that's that's my whole thing with Nirvana. But, uh, dude, we saw them before Saturday Night Live at the time the girlfriend was with. She enjoyed it. And we were like, if these guys ever come back, we'll see them again.
1: Now... When they did Saturday Night Live that night, didn't they wreck the stage also?
0: I think by the last song, they just destroy everything. Yeah,
1: like the set was getting fucked up. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they definitely had something. But uh, I don't want to get off track. I want to give a little more of the history. But, you know, yeah. I want to talk about after kind of what I think of the legacy. Yeah, I
0: didn't like mean that. to get you off track, but I just no, wanted to all. tell you because um, it was incredible to just That's like. That's
1: story because, you know, and I'll get into it, is, is that actually must have been part of some of the little bit of promotion that Geffen was doing because they really didn't push this album. It kind of just built on its own because they never expected it to sell.
0: Dude, the okay. the album started beating Michael Jackson. Think about that. It did,
1: it did. once it got to number one. It, it it had knocked out Dangerous.
0: Yeah, it was it that's Jackson. a day. And not only that, that album was saying like four hundred thousand albums a week. Can you believe that shit? Mm-hmm. So let's go, Great. On, Mike. What you got for me? Let's break a little bit into this history. All
1: right, well, you know, like by early nineteen ninety, uh, they were finding evidence that Sub Pop was having financial problems. So the rumor was that a major label would buy sub pop out. So Nirvana decided to look for their own major label to be on. They didn't want to get stuck with something they didn't like. Okay. So with help from Kim Gordon from Sonic youth, they would sign with Geffen records, subsidiary DGC. Okay. And that was, uh, you know, Sonic youth had signed on to Geffen and DGC and, they made the album called Goo, which was probably their biggest selling album ever. And uh, that's with the song Cool Thing on it and everything. Yeah, um, That, you know, that was a big deal back then. Sonic Youth had been on independent labels. They were on SST, uh, Black Flags label. Uh, I think a couple others early on they might have been on. Um, but for them to sign to Geffen was a big deal back then. And that was a time when, like I said, there was kind of this alternative music scene kind of bubbling under the surface that was trying to get out. And some of these, these labels, these big labels, uh, major labels, were, you know, if they were smart, they were, they were listening to it. And some of them tapped into it like Geffen did. Um, while they were still on Sub Pop, though, they were working on a new record, the, the idea of a new record. And the title for that was going to be called Sheep. All right, All so right. Nevermind was actually going to be called Sheep. And being big fans of the band Killdozer, okay. they, wanted, they wanted to get uh, Killdozer's producer, Butch Vig, for the album that they were going to do. Okay, and he liked, uh, you know, Cobain and Grohl's uh, and, and uh, Novichelic loved uh, the sound of uh, that latest um, Killdozer album. So, Butch Vig was behind it. They wanted to work with him. Now, Butch Vig... So, Mike, these
0: guys actually had some pretty decent producer for a band that just came off the gate.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there was always... I think Bleach Bleach had done well in the UK. Okay. Okay? So, it didn't make much of a splash here, but it had done well in the UK. So, there was some buzz around Nirvana anyway. All right? Okay. And when... You know, they—they they, what they did is they, they actually ended up going to Butch Vig's studio in Madison, Wisconsin. And they went there in April of 1990. And between the 2nd of April and the 6th of April, they had recorded eight tracks with Butch Vig. All right. Now, these eight tracks were going to be an album. OK, but um, some of the titles would be changed. OK, for instance, like... Um, they had a song called "Emodium," Yeah. And that would later be called Breed.
0: Breed really? it. Right? Okay.
1: You know, and then uh, they had a track called Dive, and that would later be released as the B-side of Sliver. Sliver, so, okay. Okay. So while they were in Madison, they, they played a show with fellow, fellow uh, Seattle band Tad, and they also did a radio interview with Madison radio station WORT on April 7th. During that time, Kirk kind of strained his voice during those couple of days they were recording. So they had to kind of chill out. They couldn't record anymore. Um, But Butch said that he would work on these tracks until they could come back and do some more recording. Now, Butch Vig, at the time, you know, was holding on to those tracks and working on them. But in the process, Nirvana drummer Chad Channing left the band. Okay. Okay, and you know any other recording they were planning on doing was gonna have to wait until, obviously, Cobain's voice improved and they got themselves a new drummer. Is there any reason
0: why he left the band?
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure. I think there might have been some creative differences. I'm really, I'm really not sure. That's never really been explained. Um, But Butch Vig had these tracks, and he made like a nice package for Nirvana. That they used those eight tracks as a demo to shop themselves to major labels. So they were lucky. They were able to get this recording done while they were still with Sub Pop and then hold on to it while they were ready to leave and go use it to show other labels. And there was a lot of buzz around them at this point. So a lot of labels were interested. And uh, but, you know, they were very picky and they they trusted Sonic Youth. So Kim Gordon would be, you know, instrumental in that. And they would sign up with with uh, Geffen subsidiary DGC. Okay. Now, when they did that, DGC would would recommend a variety of producers for an album. But the band still wanted Butch Vig. Okay. And Nirvana, uh, you know, they were very nervous recording for a major label. They they didn't like the idea of it. And they were quick to find out that some of the producers DGC were suggesting were looking for big percentage points of the profits. So they were looking for, you know, if that if the band was given sixty five thousand dollars to make an album, the producer wanted a big chunk of that. Wow. All right. So they they didn't like that. And uh they, that's actually what they were given. They they, they were given sixty five thousand dollars, and uh, they held out long enough. And Butch Vig was allowed to come in. So
0: so do a lot of bands do that? That they try to get another producer, and then you say, "Fuck that! I'm I'm bringing my own." Was there a lot of bands that had that controversy, or was that something common?
1: Um, I wouldn't say it was common. I think if you could pull it off, if you had a little bit of Pull, which they did okay because you know they just signed with Geffen Geffen was anxious to put out something and they, and remember they were kind of riding on the coattails of the Goo album by Sonic, Sonic Youth yeah. okay so there was this little bit of a hype on the label that okay now we've got another underground independent band okay and we got to put something out you know um, one thing too is like if you looked at the country back then, three quarters of the country didn't know anything about Nirvana. Nah. All right. It was, it was this little section in the Northwest out of Seattle, like Washington, Oregon, places like that. They knew about th- these guys and they were into it, you know? And, uh, but it, they were able to hold out. I guess they just realized, just bring this guy in because he's not going to ask for that much money anyway. And these guys will be happy. They'll put something out. So they were given 65000 and Nevermind would be recorded at the Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California, between May and June of 1991. The band was looking to get right into the studio, but DGC kept pushing back the dates. Now, in the meantime, the band was broke, and they had to play a couple of shows to just even raise enough gas money to get from Washington down to California. Wow. So... Yeah, I mean they didn't have nothing, no money, so it was during this time that they did some shows and they debuted "Smells Like Teen Spirit" live. So some people did get to hear that song before it ever came okay. out. Um, Butch Vig had been sent ahead of time into the studio, and some new uh, what they had done is they had sent some new songs to him ahead of time, and uh, they managed to record some of these new songs very briefly at another studio, just a quick couple of demos. And they sent it to Bruce was like, Hey, we got these new songs. Now, one of them was come as you are. And another one was smells like teen spirits. So that was the first time, you know, Vig had heard those songs going into the studio. But while waiting for a couple of months to begin the recording, uh, they, the, the band was practicing like crazy and they were tightening their material and they were working hard at all the arrangements of the song. So by the time they, they got into the studio, that what they had done had helped them immensely because they were able to start recording and do a lot of stuff in like two or three takes. Wow. Because they had practiced for months and months while they were waiting to get into the studio.
0: And by this time, Kurt Cobain's voice was fine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, months had passed. Let so, me ask and, you, you know, so
0: they, they're working on this album, you think they knew they had an instance uh, hit there? Did they think they had a success? No,
1: absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, That was never their intention. They never thought they were making something that was going to be so huge and so groundbreaking. Okay? Uh, You know, Geffen gave them $65,000. That's not a lot of money. Okay? Uh, They kind of are on the record saying that they thought they would sell maybe as much as Sonic Youth had sold, which was about a quarter of a million copies. Okay. And that's it. Um, but, you know, once it was released and, you know, quickly it was, it was realized, you know, they had a monster on their hands. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it. you know, I'll go into it in a, in a minute, but it's, it's, it's really one of those like rare cases of, Everybody underestimated.
0: Dude, but and, and by the end of it, what did they sell? Like seven million albums in America, and then they sold like thirty million albums worldwide. Or never mind. Worldwide, yeah. <laughs> one of,
1: it's one of the it's one of the biggest albums ever.
0: I'm like Jesus okay. Christ, man! How the hell, you know? And 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 they didn't even know that they were doing that because you know the critics were making fun of them at the beginning that they were like like the symphony of reckless guitar, bass, yeah. and drums. It was like nail gun but it started like a whole new movement. It's really started a new movement and they were the pioneers. I hate to say that.
1: Well, it's nothing to hate. I mean, it's, it's a fact. I mean, they, they, they pioneered it in the sense that it was them that broke. I mean, it could have been, you know, there were several bands that, that were around at that time that were very popular that could have broke, but it was just Nirvana that happened to be in the right place at the right time on the right record label that was willing to push them. And I think also there was a, a, a bit of a cultural shift in the country at the time. Uh, hair metal was dying. out. Yeah.
0: Hair metal was definitely dying.
1: Okay. And there was kind of like a, a lull like, all right, what's next?
0: You know what started yeah, happening they, for a bit? You had like a little bit of that uh, hip-hop subculture started coming up big. Yes.
1: Yes, there was, right, there was the, the you know, rap was getting bigger. Yeah, like Tribe Called uh, Quest,
0: like fucking Dr. Dre, yeah, Steve Dog, all those yeah, people yeah. were rising that,
1: up. You know, and gangster rap like NWA yeah. in the late 80s and, and stuff like that. But also you had, on the other end of the spectrum, you had shit like Backstreet Boys coming up, right? You had like early 90s. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? Maybe not quite. It wasn't like,
0: it was more like, uh, was it like New Kids on the Block and shit like that?
1: Maybe. One of them. One of them. Yeah. New Kids on the Block might have been first. I forget. But, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you had that pop stuff. And and for
0: the Spanish people, Menudo.
1: Well, Menudo's always been here. (laughs) Are they actually still around? I
0: don't know. We got to, if we ever did a Menudo show, (laughs) we got to talk to, um, We'll get Ricky,
1: we'll get Ricky Martin.
0: No, we get uh Jay, Jay Bo- uh Boogie.
1: Boogie's a big Jay, Oh Boogie, yeah. He's a big shout out to shout out to Boogie, the biggest Manudo fan. Boogie in the world.
0: lives, yeah. So we would have to get him on the show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um bass player Nova Selleck and the drummer Dave Grohl had done their bass and drum tracks in just a few days. They did them quickly. But Cobain was a little more of a perfectionist and you know, he needed more time doing his guitar tracks, his overdubs, uh, his singing. Um, and sometimes he would kind of rewrite the lyrics, even like minutes before going into recording. Now, sometimes Butch Vig and him would battle, battle things out a little bit because, (coughs) excuse me, because, uh, Cobain was, was, was a perfectionist and he didn't have, A lot of patience in the studio to do a lot of takes. So he would kind of trick Cobain into double tracking his vocals. He convinced him to do that. This way there wouldn't have to be so many takes. And he convinced him by telling him that John Lennon used to do it all the time, double tracking his vocals. (laughs) Okay, so he believed it. But I'm sure it was true anyway. But Vig um, also said that Kurt was like often moody. He was kind of a moody guy, and he would kind of brood in the corner, sit by himself, you know, during the recordings and stuff. That's just how he was, you know. Um, now, after they had done the recording, the uh, the mixing process would be So
0: this recording, and they after, did a lot of this recording, like, in California, right?
1: Van Nuys, California. Yeah, a place called Sound City. Uh, a lot of people have recorded there. It's a okay. famous spot. Okay. Uh, uh, but uh, after they did the recording, the mixing process would start, and after a few days, it was clear to both the band and Butch Vig that they would need somebody to kind of like oversee the mixing process. They were having some issues with the sounds, trying to get that right guitar sound in there, that that right drum sound in there. and they would consider a couple of guys. One guy was uh, Scott Litt, and he had worked for REM. He had mixed some REM albums. Okay. And also uh, a guy named Ed Stasium, who had worked with the Ramones and the Smithereens. Again, they've got
0: some named guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they were were considering them, um, but they kind of dismissed those two because they felt if they got either one of them, they would sound like the band that they were kind of most affiliated with. They didn't want to sound like the Ramones. They didn't want to sound like the Smithereens. They didn't want to sound like R.E.M., but they liked the mixes that these guys did. So they kind of ruled these guys out, and they ended up going with a guy named Andy Wallace, who had co-produced Slayer's uh, Season in the Abyss yeah. album from 1990. That was actually a good album. And that's a, well, yeah, it's, I'm not a big Slayer fan, but that's the album yeah. you listen to. You know, it's, it's very heavy. And uh, Cobain liked that. You know, they liked that heaviness. And they said, okay, this guy will work. So he was brought in, uh, Andy Wallace, and he worked quickly, all right? What he did was he would add effects, and he kind of tweaked the drum sounds, um, and he worked fast. He was averaging about one mix a day. So um, upon the completion of the album, Vig and Nirvana were like very – they were satisfied with the mixes. They thought it it sounded good from what they could hear. Now, when the album would be released, they would change their tune with that, especially the band. Because Col- Cobain always said like he felt it was too polished sounding that for that album. Uh, never mind, they they felt it sounded more like a Motley Crue record than a punk album. Now I
0: don't know. Motley Crue that didn't I, sound I, I was, that. didn't really, sound like a punk cool. album. More Motley Crue. That they were like a totally different. album. like it was just rock and roll to me, man.
1: Well, it's all rock and roll, but like, no, I I didn't think it sounded like Motley Crue. I didn't think it was like a punk album in the sense of the way punk records were recorded back then. And also uh, all the songs were pretty
0: long. There weren't any like short songs. They might not have
1: a. No, they were never. They were never about the two. Yeah, that's what I mean. So it wasn't a punk
0: album. So that's totally wrong. He he, I I don't even think he know what he did.
1: I I don't even think he he was talking about, honestly. All right, all right, it just, that's, that's one of the things that I disliked about this band, okay? Uh, I got to point out, is I, I always felt there was a little bit of this, like, insincerity to them, okay? And I don't mean to insult any Nirvana fans that are listening. I know some people worship the band, and that's all cool, okay? But I just feel like that they, you know, like when the album sold, and it was doing really well. They had this attitude, like, "Oh, we don't want to be a big band."
0: And that's exactly they didn't want that. Which that was amazing. They
1: were they made a hit, and they just they didn't know how to act. Now, okay. Now, sorry, that's bullshit. All right. When you get a band together, okay, you you're, you you want to make it. You can tell people, "Yeah, all right, I'd like to stay in this little, you know, little little genre here." and not break out of it. But I think that that's bullshit. I think that they enjoyed the money they got. Okay? They all became very rich from that album. And you know, they made other music after that that's not bad. Okay? But that whole grunge movement was kind of like that. It was like this whiny whiny like, "Oh, I don't want to be successful. You know, I just want to stay like little." That it always rubbed me wrong. That's me. Cuz I think, look, when you're in a band, you, you your idea is you're bringing your music to the masses. Now I'm not saying you sell out, just because see, like there's that there's that kind of like immature thinking that if you sell a lot of records, that means you're a sellout.
0: No, that All just right? means now, that you're a success, or you got a hit, and people are listening to your music, right? <laughs>
1: Now, 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 I, I'll tell you. Just because it sells a lot, that doesn't mean it's good. Okay, sorry. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of shit that just sells. But let no me tell time. you, these are,
0: that album, that that never mind. I think is one of the um, like. If, if I had to put it in, the, it's definitely to me. It's definitely the top one hundred.
1: Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I mean it's it's a very important.
0: Like me, album. I would put it like okay. between. And, um, I would put it between um, eighty-five to hundred. Definitely.
1: I mean, I have to really think about it, but yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. I mean, it's just in the top 100 is fine, but I I just think like they, you know, they went into that record not thinking it was going to do anything. Okay. I get that. All right. They had never had any success before. Okay. But when they saw that it it was starting to sell, they hadn't done anything to be a sellout. They hadn't done anything to say, oh, we're compromising ourselves to, uh, you know, be big. Everybody embraced them. And, yeah, I think Cobain didn't know how to deal with that, and that probably contributed to his death, I guess. You know what? I think the guy was a little bit socially awkward. Well, I I think – had some drug problems. Yeah. He had a lot of issues. Okay, and that's a whole other show we could do about him. And then you can go see the movie, you know. But uh, it 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 just that whole scene rubbed me wrong in that aspect because a lot of these bands that followed in their coattails, like Pearl Jam, uh, Alice in Chains, you know, they kind of had that attitude. I remember when Kurt Cobain died, right. There was, I was reading in Rolling Stone magazine. I think it was Rolling Stone. Uh, it was an open letter to Kurt Cobain by Eddie Vetta. Okay. I personally cannot stand that guy. Okay. And he talked this open letter. It was a whole page of the magazine. And he talked about how, you know, he couldn't deal with the success of his band. You know, it was like this whole thing. And at the end, he's like, "I hope I join you soon," something like that, you know. And I'm like, "This is what this is what this scene is about. It's about being like miserable and <laughs> shit, and, and like, you know." I just was like, "I'm like, this is stupid," you know what I mean? And another thing that 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 I had a problem with was, you know, I had been listening, I had heard Nirvana two years earlier, and I was like, "They're okay, they're, they're, nothing, nothing, nothing new," okay. I heard the Stooges, I heard the Ramones, I heard all this, you know, I grew up with all that punk stuff, so this band comes along and they're kind of tapping into that a little bit, and it was like okay, it was a band I never thought would be big. Mike, let and me tell is, you, when they
0: were on okay. stage,
1: they had like a different, it was like he was possessed,
0: he was a different person. You know, like that's what they like. They had this raw energy, like if you were in the room, yeah. you were like yeah, yeah, like yeah. you knew something. Yeah, no,
1: no, I, I, I'm not doubting that. I'm not doubting that at all. I'm not I'm not saying that they weren't, you know, great at what they were doing. I just don't think that they were like the groundbreaking musically band. Where they where they were groundbreaking was that type of music they were able to bring yeah. to the country in a big in a big way that, you know, punk couldn't have done 20 years earlier, okay? punk couldn't do that of, well not 20 maybe 15 yeah it wasn't 20 years yet it was like 15 years okay so from 91 yeah 76 to 91 is 15 years punk couldn't do it the world the country wasn't ready for that kind of music but they were ready in 91 for grunge which was kind of like the, the 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 child of but, of
0: punk but you know punk what after way. they came on all kind of all, all these other um... Like rock station, we there wasn't that many rock station. There was a lot of dance station or whatever. And then finally, you started hearing rock station. You had classic rock, you had K rock, you had Q whatever, and more stuff started coming. And that was definitely a big change because then you were having a lot more rock and roll on MTV too. Like,
1: I mean, just rock, like metal, you know, stuff like that. Well, yeah, the alternative scene broke out. Yeah, over through that. Okay you know you had uh, they were lumped in as an alternative band and they were but but they weren't really cuz what were they alternative to yeah. they were top 40 okay so that was a contradiction there but it, you know you had they broke open the door for a lot of lesser bands to kind of get noticed on MTV that show 120 minutes really yes. got popular after that uh what was the other show I forget. was it on v h one was yeah like- Alternative nation right right that was a, that was another one uh you know the idea that and, and again it, it, you know music was splintering off, so you had an alternative scene, you had a metal scene, you had a hip hop scene, and then you had the pop scene, which was the boy band the funny like thing you 90s. had so
0: much you had
1: so much diversification
0: of different music like now well, you listen to music. is pretty much like very like the music now is pretty bad.
1: Oh, it's it's awful. I mean, look what I said at the beginning of the show that that this was probably the last groundbreaking album. And it's almost 30 years old. So what what has happened to music in the last 30 years? It's become. Programmed. It's 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 like a factory. It's not it's just put out. Everybody sounds the same. You don't need to have talent. All you need is a pretty face and just be manipulated. Look at by Pitbull. He got a bunch Ooh. of fucking
0: Grammy. What is and he? What all, is all he is is a pitch oh. yeah,
1: yeah, yo, yo, how, how, yeah, try. yeah. And he steals. He samples. He samples old shit. Okay, and uh, old songs. Turns it into something new by adding a couple of lyrics and goes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. That's, That's what does he do? That's what he does. You know, I, I mean, and and you know, again. He, I guess he's a good-looking guy, so the women like him, and and that's what that's what sells now. It's all it's all just it it, it there's nothing there's no depth in music anymore, you know. Uh, and I, I actually you know watched the Grammys this year. I think I mentioned this before because I was waiting for them to show the Iggy Pop Lifetime Achievement thing, which they never showed. I sat there and watched the whole thing for nothing, but. You know, I was watching some of these new bands, and I just don't get it, man. I don't, I don't get it that Billy Eilish and I just don't get it. I don't know. Maybe it just might be, it might just be the age, you know. But that, like
0: Billie, she, she's like making hits, and she's getting like, you know, she's all over the radio. What you think about it, you know?
1: Yeah, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't hold anybody being successful against them. That's all good, but these aren't like this is pop. It's not, it's not. Groundbreaking stuff. There's always going to be pop music. There's always going to be, you know, a good-looking guy or a good-looking Dude, girl singing a song. Think about how bad it
0: is that yeah. rat? Rat is. <laughs> the... Oh yeah. Yeah. Round yeah. and round.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a guy. It's a funny Geico commercial. Geico always makes entertaining commercials, and they put rat in it, and they, they're like, "Oh, we have a rat problem in the basement," and they're in the, they're in the in the basement singing round and round. But they made a little comeback. But the album, had yeah, the song is now yeah. in the top twenty. <laughs> I mean, like, how does that happen? People are dying itching for real music again, not not auto tuned, not programmed, not sampled all over the place real music with real instruments and real people singing and performing. Uh, I, I think, look, I mean, we, you know, the things going on in the country right now, maybe we're, we're ripe for something like that, a cultural shift backwards go into stuff like that again. I think it'd be great. I,
0: you know what? I keep looking, I keep looking around and say, this would be a great time to start a brand new punk movement.
1: Well, look, you know, the the, the punk scene in the UK, especially uh, in the 70s, came out of anger and anger of like, you know, my life isn't worth shit and I'm just going to try to, you know, make something out of what I got. And yeah, I mean, I I don't know if we can do that here. Uh, It's possible, you know, Uh, of course, it all depends on, you know, the right kind of people being interested, you know. It takes young people so, to do it.
0: Mike, you know? imagine this.
1: I got a, I got a guy playing guitar,
0: a guy in the back playing right. drum, one guy playing bass. The music's going hot and heavy, like, you know, good solos. And then I just say one word, go home. And that's the whole song. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: all, that's all been done. It'll be that's like a good song before. ever. <laughs> <One hit. laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, you
1: know, there's been songs that have you know two or three lyrics in it and that's it. It'll be like tequila, you know? but it'll be like go home. And <laughs> I'm
0: gonna get like three hot girls just to play behind me, and I'm gonna look like I'm all like yeah, and it's gonna go like and they just go home and say, a minute and thirty seconds done. <laughs> Next song.
1: Wow, wow. Now, when 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 the Nevermind album went to the mastering process, just getting back to this, okay. Um, on August 2nd of that year, they used a place called the Mastering Lab in Hollywood. And there was a guy named Howie Weinberg that began mastering the album before the band had even showed up. He had like mastered most of it. He had gotten started on it. But he had made a a major mistake in the process of mastering the album because there was supposed to be a hidden track. There was a track called Endless Names. And it was supposed to be... At the end of Something, Something In My Way. In like way. Was yeah, break. that's a
0: good song.
1: Yeah. Right, yeah. right. But what had happened was Weinberg got confused somehow, made a mistake, and he left that track off the album. So the first like 20,000 pressings of Nevermind didn't have that, that secret oh. track, Endless Nameless, at the end. All right. Now, the band got an early copy of the album and played it and realized that. And was like, oh, shit, this is not cool. So they called him up and they said, listen, you got to fix this. This is this is important. So he did. He he remastered it again. And, and so let me ask you the, the original that.
0: copy with, uh, with that uh, only 12 tracks and that mistake. Is that worth anything?
1: It could be. I mean, obviously, it's different than the rest of them yeah. with, without that track. Um I would think since it's 20,000, that that might have a little value if you were, especially, you know, for a Nirvana fan, if somebody wanted yeah. to collect everything they ever put out, you would want to, you would want to have that. You know, w- one example of that, that I went through in my life was the, the Ramones second album, Leave Home. Okay. They had uh, a track on there. and I think it was the first 10,000 records were pressed with it. They had a track on there called Carbona, Not Glue. And it was about sniffing Carbona, <laughs> which was a rug cleaner. Okay? And they thought, the band thought Carbona, they didn't know it was the name. They thought it was the chemical, like the name of the chemical. Okay, They didn't know it was a trademark brand name. They thought Carbona was actually the name of the chemical in that thing that people would get high on. So, like, they're talking about doing Carbona. The Carbona company sued them. Okay, and they had to take it off the album and they replaced it with an early version of Sheena <laughs> is a punk rocker. Okay. And so Sheena is Sheena is the Punk Rocker is on that album and on Rocket to Russia. And it's a slightly different mix between the two. Uh one was made for okay. AM, one was made for FM. Right. But but the point of what I'm saying is there were only ten thousand copies of of that album released in America with Carbona Not Glue. And in the, in the UK, it was uh, the song Babysitter, which was never released in the United States until years and years later, was put on instead of Sheena is a punk rocker. So there were actually three versions wow. at one point of Leave Home. And I was I was always on a quest for them. Okay, I had the regular one with Sheena. That was a, after the first 10,000 that came out. But I always wanted the one with Carbona. And every time I ever found it, it was like, you know, wow. $75 hours or something like that. Or like 100 Now That was, you know, a lot of money back in the 80s. I wasn't going to spend that. I ended up finding it. Uh, that album had come out in 77. I ended up finding it in like the mid 80s in Philadelphia. In a record store. I was down in Philly. And uh, I bought it. And it was like, I think it was like, $30 or something like that. So it was a little cheaper. But yeah, I mean that happens sometimes. Mistakes are made or the band gets sued over a song and then there's like different versions of the album and that can make the value go yeah, up. Yeah, that's like, cuz you, know, you know that's a asking.
0: totally yeah, like, sometimes they make these mistakes and you're like, "Oh shit, man." They are difficult. People definitely collect albums. So, um what can you tell me about this yeah. um album that was a uh, 13th song, 49 minutes long um on... And the first song that was the first single was, um, smell like team, team spirit.
1: Yeah. I mean, smells like team spirit. I mean, what can you say about that? That, that was like a kick in the ass, you know, to, to, to rock radio. Okay. Which really had been playing nothing but classic rock and shitty hair metal for the last 10 years. Okay. And, you know, uh, like I said earlier, it was it was groundbreaking that this kind of music, this kind of underground stuff that was really popular only in a, you know, a part of the country, no one gave a shit about. Okay, and it it broke through and and you know yeah. became a national hit. And it's it's it, you know when you think of Nirvana, yeah, you think, definitely you think. of that think,
0: song. Uh, You know what's funny? they they're also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 2014, yes, which in I was round. like, "Wow, man!" And did, I, I still say that. How long the band only lasted? Like what, seven years? Yeah, the Ninety- eighty-seven to yeah a, ninety-four. To 94 and they had like a few, like they had a few albums. Uh, I remember you know the uh, what was it? The Unna, um you know, uh, no in Unna album. In, that was in, a great Utah, album bro. with the song "Rape Me." That had a bunch of good songs. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They were, you know. They were still putting out good music. He was very talented and prolific, Kurt Cobain. You know, he could probably write Let song. Let me ask you, you
0: think if he was alive today, you know, he would still be somebody that was probably writing songs, song or he would have just been hiding and not doing anything?
1: Good question. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he had a lot of demons, man. You know, if he if he had lived, would he have been able to deal with, you know, the band? I think he probably would have ended the band. Maybe, maybe around the time of that, of when he died, had he not died, maybe even around that same time, he might've ended the band and disappeared for a while. And then come back and be a solo guy. Wow. I could see that. I could see that because, because I think like he probably would feel, and maybe the whole band would feel that way. It may not just be him. Um, Maybe they felt they, they would have run their course and they just didn't want to put out any shit. I mean, they were very yeah. serious about what they were doing. They 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 weren't like you know, casual about it. They weren't flippant about it. They were like we're making, you know, yeah. and his music was very personal. You know, I mean, a lot of songs on Nevermind, people say are about like his breakup with some chick, you know, and and uh you know, he uh a lot of it he wrote from a, a, a very personal point yeah. of view. The guy had a lot of demons. He, you know, if, if he had lived it, he probably would have like broke up the band and went on hiatus for about five or six years, and then there'd be a big comeback with, you know, something something. Do new you remember "Song in the
0: Bloom? It was like almost a throwback to the Beatles.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they again, you know, they they made an effort. In all that grungy noise, they were melodic in a lot of their songs, which I did yeah. enjoy. Certain tracks like that, you know, you know, like stuff like "Come As You I, I Are," love like I, like
0: poly, really like I love that. I like Polly. I love "Territory yeah. Pissing." P- P-
1: Territorial ter- 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 Pissing is one of my. Drain you,
0: I, I, I love Definitely. Stay away uh, on a plane. Something in the way that these are. Let me tell you, yeah. that album is also very well produced because it goes it it goes like
1: up and down. Yeah. Well, did you ever know? Right, because you have like a slow song then yeah. a fast song. Yeah, did 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 you did you ever notice? Um, you you really like the way Cobain sang. You never really could understand. Yeah, because he like he
0: would mumble some of the words.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Like the lyrics are like when you read them, yeah, they don't that. make any sense. You know, he, he's really like out there what he was doing, but you know. Again, it was the music was first was his policy. the music was first, the lyrics second, and uh you know who else is like that and and you don't really think about oh, yeah but uh Mick Jagger, okay, yeah, Mick Jagger he says when he writes lyrics, he's more concerned with how the music is sounding, but the lyrics are kind of secondary, and if he does, if he likes a lyric he'll he'll sing it you know very clearly, but there's. Songs that like he kind of mumbles, especially older stuff. Okay, and uh, he used to do it a lot. He kind of slur it or something because he you know just wasn't crazy about of the lyrics. Anyway,
0: and they, they would talk about that. He was using, but Frank Sinatra got to the point that he hated some of the lyrics that he would just mumble them.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. There, there were some Cause... songs he probably didn't like singing. Like, no. did you ever hear his version of Old MacDonald? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he was pretty much like, yeah,
1: I do that once in a while, but I'm, I
0: just try and get through it. Because think about it, you sing the same song a hundred, a hundred times.
1: He you was like, "Fuck
0: it. it, yeah, yeah."
1: You get you get sick of it after a while, you know. a Career like that long. But one thing we got to talk about towards the end here is is uh, the album cover for for Nevermind because that's that's iconic in itself. And uh you know, everybody knows it. He yeah. Knows that infant baby in the water, and there's a US dollar bill on a fish hook in front of him. Now, Cobain got the idea of that one day when he was watching a show about water births with Dave wow. Roll. They were watching T V. And they mentioned this idea to Geffen Records art director for the album, a guy named Robert Fisher. And he kind of was like, okay, that sounds interesting. And he started looking for photos that he could find of underwater births, but everything was like too graphic. You yeah. know, everything was like, you know, the baby coming out or something like that. So they couldn't do that. But they uh, Fisher sent a photographer. He decided to do something on his own. And he sent a photographer named Kirk Weddle to a baby pool, okay, okay. a pool that just babies would be in. And they took a bunch of pictures of different babies and the band settled on uh, four-month-old yeah. Spencer Eldon, okay? And he was the son of a friend of Weddell's, okay, the photographer. So that's who that – in case you didn't know the kid's you know what, name. They, I think Spencer when they did like
0: the 20th anniversary of the album, they had him as an adult. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: They did. I saw that. And they also took a picture yeah. of him in the water. And he's went the same the cover it's, it's him like, like the same 20 cover. years later. Yeah, because hey, if stuff. you see,
0: if you ever see yeah, what they did yeah. to the they had like a bunch of um revisit, this. Like, there's this one, this one on Never Mind, now that got re, re, redone that's got like 40 songs, and then there's another one that got like 70 songs. It's crazy what oh, yeah. they've
1: done. There's a deluxe, you know, there's a deluxe album,
0: yeah,
1: right? I think it's 40 songs, so it's probably like it's all different versions. No, but they got the super deluxe also. That's seventy I mean, songs. I'm, I'm,
0: I'm,
1: never mind. Yeah, never mind. if you look it
0: up, it's insane. Let me see. If, let me see if wow. I can find it right now. Yeah. Cause I, they got the deluxe version that is like forty songs. Yes, but dude, they, these people yeah, were like, yeah. holy shit, man! Like this album definitely, they definitely um kicked the the album into high gear. Now, one thing too, uh,
1: the back cover featured the rubber monkey there in front of that collage of pictures that was created by Cobain. Um, Everything from like raw beef was in those pictures, images of Dante's Inferno. And he had pictures of diseased vaginas in there in that collage. Uh, Yeah. And there's actually, if you look close, there's a small picture of Kiss, the band Kiss, standing in front (laughs) of a slab of beef. (laughs) And one thing they did, too, is um, I don't I I think this may have changed with the with the deluxe versions. But when it first came out, there were no complete lyrics written in the record. Okay, you couldn't. There was nothing there for each song. So you had to kind of guess what he was saying. And uh, he, you know, they included with the album like random song lyrics here and there. But there was nothing done you know, for each song, like yeah, so Mike, check this without. out. they
0: got the vinyl nevermind deluxe edition, forty songs, two hours and twenty seven minutes, and this include like wow. you know all the singles that they had. this include all the b sides, right then they did like they did some scripts, yeah. some yeah they got yep. some b side that they did live at the Paramount theater. Then they, they got a song called B seven yeah. that they did D seven that they did live at the B C at the BBC. So they got all these live versions also, and they got the original. They got all the studio cut of uh of that one. They got like songs like Dive. They got like a bunch of songs that never made the album also. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they had B sides like Dive was the B side of Sliver.
0: And, and check right this before. out. Oh, and mind. then they have a um, super deluxe one. 70 song 4 hours and 13 oh, okay. minutes. And this guy like wow. every single recording, wow. or every song uh remastered digital remake uh boombox rehearsal like everything.
1: Wow. Now I want to talk about here, you know, how they were they were unprepared for the success cuz the album got released on September 24th, 1991. And uh, that was in America. And American record stores received 46,251 copies. 35,000 copies went to the UK because Bleach had done well there earlier. Okay, Now, on September 10th, two weeks earlier, the lead single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, was released with the intention of kind of gathering rock fans and alternative music fans at the same time. And the band also started a tour just when that single came out. So Geffen's expectations for Nevermind were were very low. They thought about selling about, like I said, as much as Sonic Youth's Goo album, which was 250,000 copies. Okay, But the album would debut at 144 on Billboard, and that was based on the American Northwest, in particular the Seattle area, where it sold out immediately. You couldn't find it. In that Okay Every record store Was sold out Now over the next few months Teen Spirit Was becoming more And more popular Originally on MTV They played the video On 120 minutes But It got so popular That yeah. they started to Put it in the daytime rotation Alright they, they couldn't They couldn't get away from it So The song would actually Peak At number 6 In the United States The album would also Go gold quickly Now The band was not interested about at all. And this is what I was talking about before. Like Nova Selleck had said, you know, about the, the, the success of it. He had said, yeah, I was happy about it. It was pretty cool. It was kind of neat. But I didn't give a shit about some kind of achievement like that. It's cool, I guess. You know, and I, I'm kind of like, that just doesn't sound. that, Dude, you, you, know you know what? what
0: that, that sounds, sounds crazy because there's people that's that just die for crazy. that little bit of
1: recognition, you know? Yeah, stop stop it. First of all, <laughs> does anybody he's, know who knows? He's a lunatic. He <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard he's crazy, but the, the everybody yeah. forgets the bass player in their vibe. But he's
0: a, <laughs> dude, didn't he, didn't he come <laughs> like he from a, a, uh, a Clear Rival now. Revival um like band that, that will do um that would do cover a okay, clear, clear rival re, clear rival revival? Yeah. Uh, clear he came something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know who the guy that actually that, made out yeah, like yeah, a bandit yeah. with it was David Grohl. She actually had a great career after that.
1: Well, Dave Grohl and and let me tell you, I love the, the Foo, Foo Fighter in the near future. I, I I like him better than Nirvana. I sorry, it's a fact. I just think that there... He's. I mean, he could play guitar. He could produce it. I was he wanted. He could sing. He could do. And he's produced for a lot of people. He's gone on to work with Motorhead and, you know, all kinds of bands. You know what I call him? He's like the the
0: American David Bowie of producing.
1: Well, well, yeah. I mean, he's he's produced a lot of bands. And uh, and, and, and he keeps his his head on right, it seems. Like, Dave Grohl seems like a very humble guy. He, like you could go up to him and say, Hey, how you doing? I don't, know, man, I don't know if that's true, but that's the impression that I get. And I just think that, you know, okay, he was playing drums in Nirvana and he had to take a back seat to Cobain. I think probably behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, he was probably, he was,
0: probably, he, he was definitely the uh, backup and, lyrics. You know, a lot of things he said in the background.
1: Yeah. Well, right. He play, he, he No, he, he didn't. mind vocals, he did,
0: the back he did a lot yeah. of them. Like, was like you know what? We saw that after he got into Foo Fighter. Yeah. The guy has a pretty decent voice. He's a great rocker of... Dude, the, let me tell you, the fucking guy broke his leg once and did a whole show. Which is like a lot of he guys would show. have sat down that. and yeah. be like, I "Fuck this, I'm out." No, this guy said, "You know what? The people pay. I'm gonna finish the fucking show." And he went up there. Hit that the next day. He had yeah. another one. I think he finished the tour with a broken leg.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've known a few bands that have done stuff like that. I remember seeing the Dickies one time and the singer had a broken leg and he just did the whole show in a wheelchair. And he was like wheeling, you know, it was a punk band and he was wheeling himself down the stage. It was hilarious. You know, (laughs) back and forth. But uh, the album, Nevermind, would go to number one on January 11th, 1992. And he uh that album would just would displace my dude, Jackson, you know what that's like huge. Dangerous Think about it's how big that is. It is. Not, that is, and that was like Yeah. And Divana was like um right? they did uh the, what you know, the yeah.
0: recording institute of, of the R I A A made the album uh, a diamond. Cause, yeah yeah cause I think that's only half it a was few such times, a problem right? that nobody yeah. saw coming but it changed the way people were listening to music it changed it started a whole fucking uh, agenda cuz I I remember going yeah, to I genre. never heard of Absolutely. a turn of and that's all they call it. oh this is a turn of the rock and I remember even to the point that they just did a bunch of uh where you would go to like Sam Goody's or any of these record stores they had like this whole section yes. of this is alternative rock and they like like I you had like Addison Chain, you had all these other bad, like Sister 7. Every, yeah. And everybody was like, a Seattle bunch fucking miserable cunt.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and they, you know, it, it spotlighted kind of a, you know, kids that were like into this, like what they were about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like kind of like a, a youth movement in a way. Um, And it was interesting. I I was a couple of years past it, so I kind of didn't relate all the way. But over the years, I got to say, it's been 29 years since that came out. I've definitely embraced Nirvana a lot more than, you know, I did 30 years ago. But, you know, I I, I think. Mike, think about this. A future show could be on
0: Nirvana. Uh, We could do the 30th anniversary (laughs) in 2021.
1: Yeah, that would be next year. year. Um, Yeah, that's something to think about. Now, the album at that point, when it went to number one in January of 92, it it was selling 300,000 records per week. All right. Now, other singles after Teen Spirit was Come As You Are and Lithium and In Bloom. But Come As You Are and Teen Spirit would be the only top 40 hits they would have in America
0: yeah, and but then, like, let me though, tell like, you, that the album, the album did not have a weak song. The yeah. album was pretty good. Like, But I think there's...
1: No. Oh, I, I listened to it today, and uh, I haven't listened to it in a few years, and you know, all the way through. Dude, that's what and I say. Was, I heard it, like, it's last night album. twice. I was you like, know? shit, I
0: forgot how good these guys were. I was like, hold on. To me, I'm a little biased. My favorite thing of them is still um, the MTV Uncut. Unplugged? I mean, Uncut. Jesus Christ. Unplugged. And I'm sober. But Unplug, I still think Unplug <laughs> is one of the best things that 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 came out, and that 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 the the one with them, Addison Chain, and as much as I hate Eric Clapton, they were phenomenal.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh fucking! I yeah, even forgot and, and about it. yeah. One. That was another day. Let me tell you, Unplug was a, a a show ahead of itself, and they did some good stuff, man.
1: It it was good yeah. because they would start to take chances a little bit. Yeah, and they would do you know like kiss unplugged. Really, okay. And it actually, Mike, that's another it actually,
0: thing we should do good. like a whole month of unplugged because there were, we could we could get the footage, we could download. It'll be easy to get stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and again, you know, we've got the uh, just so everybody's aware, we've got the new uh, Facebook group page. That page went that page Podcast, went up fast. A lot of people check it, it. it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people joined it. Uh your friends, my friends, and people interested in the show. And uh it's it's public, oh, If you're so, you part know, of you the group and you know either, people either that like rock, feel free there. to
0: invite any of your friends too.
1: But you know, we talk about other things too. We talk about reggae, we talk about country music, we talk about hip hop a little bit. Uh it you know, anything that's just real. Okay, I mean, real music uh coming from the heart you know um it it, it it the group's been fun i've been posting different things i have a a large record collection i have other stuff and a lot of music memorabilia i've just been do i just want to say but
0: if you join this group this is, we don't don't break we don't talk any politics in this group it's just music so if you use
1: no no, no, no. that's that's the only when you join you'll see the the one rule just, just no, no discussion about politics. Let's keep it all about yeah. music. And everybody just because you know what, that. I don't want so this turn into good.
0: some. Um, no, this is a group of people we can forget about what the fuck's going on in the world. let talking about music. Let's enjoy it. And um,
1: right, right. right. Music yeah. is the is the great uniter in the world. Okay, through all kinds of people. So, and the only two kind of rules that we have is no politics and just respect each other and be. You know, be decent. Don't shit on each other because you like a band. Yeah. The other guy thinks it sucks, or you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's all good. It's all good. It's been fun so far, and, and uh, every day I'm adding a little bit more to it. Um, you could find us there, and you could find me under my my regular name, Michael Baker. You can find me on Instagram, Rocker Mike Two One Two, and on Twitter. Hey, wait up, Mike? Before Mike you do, we got three. some exciting we, we
0: news. You, we got some few shows coming in a few weeks. Let the people know, like we 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 got a uh-huh. a person from uh, maybe we got a good T Rex connect uh, connection. Yeah, uh, well, I don't want
1: to. I don't want. But I'm just saying, we've been getting some really response from some people. We we
0: also got a yeah. few surprise shows coming out for um yeah. from some other people that you got in touch. Like you getting, you're starting to reach out a lot of people. You know.
1: I have, I have. And, uh, you know, I don't want to give any names away yet, but there's been some people, older people on the music scene. Uh, we had just done recently, a uh, an interview with, with handsome Dick Manitoba from the dictators that went very well, but I started through social media, you know, looking for some people on the music scene in the sixties and the seventies and interesting people that have interesting stories. And, uh, we'll hopefully get some and uh some mike with that you can out.
0: people can find me
1: on the rock
0: show um group page you can find me on instagram facebook twitter uh anything social media we also got the uh, website getting lumped up and if you like what you see um please subscribe to um to our youtube we need all this subscriber we can get um it's getting lumped up so um you know what thank we, you for yeah, yep. we got some videos. Uh, are doing pretty good on um on the YouTube channel, but we definitely need a little bit more support, so uh we can uh probably uh make a few bucks and start putting more production to the show and getting a few equipment and pretty much um by you going yeah. on youtube you uh pretty much help us uh to hopefully that we can finally reach like at least five thousand people so we can make something. <laughs> Uh, well, would be. I hope we video. can do video. video again, you know what? So we we're probably gonna God. do video, but with this whole shit that happened, holy crap! Yeah, but you know what? Well, Everything goes back, back to normal. Then, holy shit! What the hell happened? It's like a, it's like somebody threw in a cold curveball. <laughs> we'll be all right.
1: Yeah, yeah. For those who don't know, we're Baseball yeah, so yeah. City. Yeah, and, uh, and everybody,
0: Kansas, yeah. remember. Don't get drunk, get lumped up. We'll see you next week. And thank you for being a listener. Have a good one.